Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. Chapter 8, verse 27 to 30. You may locate this text in your Pew Bible on page 921. First, let us prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and still others. One of the prophets, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah, and he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God shall, of our God shall stand forever. Amen. Good job. So some of you know that I have recently made this weird choice uh, and started this new adventure to go back to school. I just started last month at San Francisco Theological Seminary to begin a doctorate in ministry. I'll be there on campus about three weeks out of every year while I continue to be here full time with our young adults and our gathering worship service. When I'm not on campus, I'll be here and reading and writing and looking tired, eventually researching for a dissertation with your help. I tell you this in part because it's going to be a lot harder for me to quit next year if you all know about it and are asking me about it. This is an accountability issue that we're working on right here. And so over this past year as I applied to schools, I found myself thinking a lot about these questions that Jesus asks in our scripture for today. This is the story where we find the language of this sermon series that we've been journeying through in this new year. Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And so we've been looking at different identities of Jesus throughout the four Gospels. Knowing and talking about who Jesus is, you can imagine that this is something that comes up when applying for programs in ministry. And so I've been thinking about these things and looking back on some writing that I did when I first applied to go to seminary. As you enter seminary and again throughout the ordination process, you're asked to write a statement of faith, just a one-page document on just what it is that you believe. And I found myself looking through these statements that I've written over these past 12 years since I first applied to seminary. 
There wasn't anything particularly shocking in them. If anything, working in church ministry all of these years has only made me more heretical. What has caused me to linger is that I can still remember what I was doing and how I was thinking as I wrote most of these. I remember in that first summer after my first year at Princeton, I was home in Illinois. I was helping my mom through chemo. And I can remember marching angrily around my backyard, yelling irrationally about the Trinity. The committee that was overseeing my work there in my home presbytery in Illinois, they had advised me that I should include more language about the doctrine of the Trinity in my statement of faith. Specifically, they asked, how does the Trinity affect your faith and your life? And I remember shouting into the cornfield behind my parents' house, that Trinity does not affect my life or my faith. Probably some other words were thrown in there. My mom, in all of the brilliance of a woman who didn't need theological training to know it was true, I remember her saying, well, then just write about that. Trust yourself and tell the committee, well, she would tell me not to finish that sentence from a pulpit. I remember that because what I wrote was, I believe the Trinity to be our best and still failed attempt to use human language to describe an indescribable God. I believe our attempts to whittle this mystery down into our daily lives to be a fool's errand when highly amusing to our Creator, Savior, and Holy Ghost. It's apparent to me that I was subtly trolling my committee. It was also apparent to them, making the entire process more difficult for myself than I needed to. But I think actually that my in intention here was kind of what Jesus had in mind with these two questions. Here's what I mean. Jesus asks two questions to his disciples in the story. He says, first, who do people say that I am? And the disciples have some answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, others a prophet. Jesus is asking, what have you heard? These crowds that are coming to be fed and healed, what are they saying? As Jesus' questions go, this is a pretty low stakes one for the disciples. There's another question. And this time he asks, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? This is a harder question. This time it's only Peter that attempts a response. My committee and I butted heads throughout my ordination process because of my various statements of faith, because what they really wanted was an answer to Jesus' first question, the safe question, the safer answer, was for me to be able to regurgitate everything I had been taught. The theology of the Church Fathers, a summary of our creeds and confessions. Just write down what all the other people have said. I eventually did that. What I was trying to answer was his second question. In that second question, Jesus doesn't ask, who am I? He's not asking, about his own identity, not entirely. Now Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? He's asking about his identity as it lives in his disciples. The way he asks this question, it makes the identity of the one answering part of the answer. Well, that's a harder thing for an ordination committee to evaluate 
It's a much harder answer to come up with. The stakes are higher here. We know this to be true about how our faith is formed. Questions of theology, who we know God to be, are always intertwined with questions of identity, who we know ourselves to be. I don't think Jesus' word choice is accidental. All of history's wisest teachers have insisted that to know God, we need to know ourselves. John Calvin, who we largely consider the father of Presbyterianism, whose institutes are a large part of why I never wanted to go back to school, he begins his writing by saying, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Our own identity is interwoven with our knowing of the divine. And these are big things. I think these are important things in our days. My old Presbytery committee wasn't unusual as far as Presbytery committee goes, and they weren't wrong. Our ordination process as Presbyterians is intellectually rigorous. It reflects our denomination. We are a people who like to think about things. We want to know if our pastors have learned the tradition, studied the wisdom, if they can translate the ancient languages. It makes sense to start with the first question first, to know what others have said. But I find myself wondering, more so the longer I do this work, if we get stuck there, if we stay on that first question, if we lean on the easier ways of knowing with our heads to avoid the harder work, all at the risk of discovering, of not discovering something more. We have this second question from Jesus. Who do you say that I am? And Peter's the only one who attempts an answer. And of course he is. Peter is our eager, impetuous disciple. He says, you are the anointed one, or the Messiah, or the Christ. And Jesus responds, say nothing to anyone. When Matthew's gospel retells this story, Matthew inserts this extra little scene. Jesus gushes in praise of Peter. In Matthew, Peter answers and Jesus responds, blessed are you and it is on you, Peter the rock, that I will build my church. But none of that happens in Mark. Matthew's version of the story has colored the lens I normally read it through, but if we, if we pull Matthew away and just stay in this first account from Mark, I think we have to wonder, was Peter's answer right? All Jesus responds is, don't tell anybody. Epitomeo, it's a charge, it's a stern order to keep silent. It's a refrain that Jesus uses again and again. Always, though, when he says this word, he is saying it to those he has just healed or to the demons that he has just expelled. He is saying it to those who know something of who he is, but they don't know the full story. This is the only time Jesus uses the word in response to a disciple. We have to wonder if Peter's answer was what Jesus wanted. He's not wrong, but in the teaching and the rebuking that follows, 
it's evident that there is so much more here. Jesus says, deny your own self, take up your own cross, set your heart on divine things, not human things. Peter's answer might have been right, but it was no more right than the demons. His answer might have been correct, but it wasn't enough. The entire Gospel of Mark turns here. It all turns on these questions. After this, Jesus begins the journey to Jerusalem, to the cross and the tomb. Who do you say that I am? If Peter's answer wasn't exactly what Jesus was wanting, Matthew's version of this story reads a little more critically for us. It is on this one, this one impetuous disciple who answers correctly, but not completely. It's on this one that the church is built. You have to wonder how often we, the church, follow Peter in our answering, preferring answers that are right, but not complete. I wonder how often we've chosen to know in our heads without acknowledging what is true in our hearts. And Jesus responds, there is so much more. I wonder, because for all of my lifetime, the church has been embroiled in debates over what is right, and we have needed to be. When the identity of God's children is at stake, the church can't remain silent. And so we're part of a tradition that has used all of our books, all of our thinking, to insist that all of God's children are part of this family. We're a small minority in the whole church who does, and so we have to keep insisting that this is right. But at the same time, we have had an entire generation opt out of the church. We've left an entire generation wondering, is this it? Or is there something more here? I spent a few days earlier this week in Montreat, North Carolina, where our Presbyterian Conference Center is, with a handful of other young adult ministry leaders. And we talked and offered ideas and shared frustrations. And it occurred to me as I talked with other folks about this ministry that you've given me to do, it occurred to me that with all of the things that make ministry with my generation different and difficult, this might be the greatest one. We in the progressive church have thought that if our thinking was right, if, we, if our practices modeled the values that our younger generations have told us are important, if we just showed that we aren't the hypocritical, judgmental church that dominates our cultural airwaves, then they might just come back in. But instead, I think that they're telling us, asking us, is this all? Yeah, you've, you've got it right. You've decided that all God's children are welcome. You've done good mission and justice, and that's great. But you don't even have to know Jesus to do that part. You don't have to know Jesus to get those things right. We're in the minority of churches that get it right, but the vast majority of our nation has already decided these things are true. Businesses, corporations, schools, even the demons get it right. We've talked a lot about the information, but not so much about the transformation. 
And I think that's what my generation and Jesus are pointing us towards. Who do you say that I am? If we are leaning on Peter's answer, it's no wonder my generation has opted out of church. There's got to be more than this. I know that there is more. I suspected it those 12 years ago, yelling into a cornfield, wrestling with who God was for me and who I thought that committee wanted me to be. I know there is so much more. I'm still trying to trust myself in it. I might have to go back to school to figure it out. I know there is more, and I've experienced it here with you as young adults who grew up in the church, who left the church, who have never been into a church, as we all gather together and wonder about life and faith in ways that aren't necessarily right as much as they are honest. I know there's more. I've experienced at tears that are common in my own eyes in the midst of the gathering as we sing holy secular music and communion is gobbled up by children showing us why Jesus always used those as his model as they're not afraid to ask for more. I know that there is more. I've experienced it as anger in my bones as I have sat in our migrant shelter at our nation's border, being overcome with love for children we won't let in. Who do you say that I am? Church, I think we need to consider our answers. We've spent a lot of time on the first question. We have a lot of right answers. But our world, I think if we're honest, our own souls are begging us to think about the second. We've trained and I've been trained and taught in the right answers. But our young adults, every generation for the foreseeable future, they're not asking for right answers. They want to know what is real and what is honest and what gives us reason not to think more but to live. I think that's what Jesus is asking too. This is hard in these days. We are living in days that are so loud. It is easy to get lost in the noise, and we do. The chaos wants for us to get lost in it. We grow comfortable with the discomfort in our gut, dismiss it as a product of our time. We allow ourselves to trust the noise instead of knowing, trusting our own selves. And the resulting dissonance is everywhere. We have wise people making weird decisions. We have power creating forced choices between people and resources where there doesn't need to be a choice. We're being made to take a side, and our sides begin to be our identity. It's in times like these that Jesus needs a people to answer the harder things. Deny yourself, take up your cross, get your heads up into divine things. To choose silence instead of noise, to choose prayer instead of pride, to take a long look at our own selves, trusting in who we are, who Jesus is in us, before we allow others to choose an identity for us. Who do you say that I am? The answer is bigger, greater than anything we can possibly know. And so Jesus doesn't stop asking for the sake of those who come after us and for the sake of our own souls who know that there's more than this. Let us seek those answers with all of our being. Let us pray.
So Holy God, make us to know you, that we might learn to trust ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.